But there is one song that's not on that list that has a phrase in it that we are going to talk about today. And I love it when God does things where he knits things together because Debbie has already talked about this song. Anyone want to know what it is? Joy to the world. Thank you very much. Joy to the world. That's right. Because in this song it has a phrase that knits in our study of heaven to our study or to our Christmas preaching. And it's this phrase right here. Where in Joy to the World it says, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. You know, we know what the curse is that he's speaking about in this song when he wrote it. Isaac Watts, I believe. He's speaking from Genesis 3. Right here, we looked at this recently. Today we're going to look at it in a similar context, but we're going to expand it a little bit. So Genesis 3, here this is God speaking to Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. Now remember that the garden was created, it was in perfect harmony. And then in rebellion, man has broken that harmony and everything is in disrepair, is, is, is not harmonious at all now. And so God is saying to them, because you have done this, because you've rebelled, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He goes on further and says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and in pain you will bear forth children. Let your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. And then to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life, both the thorns and the thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken and for, and for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. Genesis 3, 14-20. That is the curse. When Isaac wrote this song, that's what he's referring to. It's the curse. God cursed all creation. He cursed everything in the earth. He cursed all animal life. He cursed um, uh, mankind. Randy Alcorn summarizes it like this when he says... Since the fall, generations have lived and died after spending most of their productive years eking out an existence in the pursuit of food, shelter, and protection against theft and war. Mankind has been distracted and debilitated by sickness and sin. Our cultural development has likewise been stunted and warped and sometimes misdirected. So in other words... I would just say that that word that we can use for mankind's efforts since that day is the word futility. A lack of effectiveness and success. The sinfulness of man becomes so overbearing that, right, let me back up and just say, and so in the days since then, God has this, his story begins to unfold in scripture of his relationship with mankind and this curse and how it unfolds. So Adam and Eve, they have two children and the very first thing we read about is that one kills the other. 
The sinfulness of man continues to unfold and is so overbearing that God decides that he needs to reset on creation. And so the great flood serves as a judgment on mankind with only one family being saved as as a remnant to begin over with and a pair of every animal to start with. God chooses one man later on to set aside and create a people for himself in Abraham. And his descendants become the nation Israel. And their relationship with God becomes a cycle. Israel's relationship with God becomes a cycle of sin and rebellion and then calling out for God for help. And God helps them. And there's a time of obedience, of of fruitfulness. But then there goes back into a time of falling away and sinfulness. And the cycle begins over again. Sinfulness, rebellion, drawing away, idols, all kinds of sin. And in that sin, they find themselves entrapped, usually by another nation. And in that being trapped, they call out for God. He saves them. Time of flourishing. Go back into sin. And the cycle with the nation continues on and on like that. It goes over and over. And the nation no longer wants to be ruled by God eventually. They don't want to be, have God as their king. They want a king like everyone else. And so God answers that prayer and he gives them Saul, who is a failure as a king and as a leader. He's replaced by David, the man who is said to be a man after God's own heart. But even in David, David has a personal sin cycle as well. So just like Israel, who has a cycle of sin and disobedience, in slavery, um, uh, calling out to God, God answers, fruitfulness, sin, slavery, this cycle continues. And David finds that in his own life with Bathsheba, with the ruling and the, and the, the reigning of the, the bringing up of his own children. He finds in his own life that that sin cycle is there in him as an individual. After David, the nation continues to spiral into decadence and finally into slavery again as they're overtaken by neighboring kingdoms, which was God's judgment on them. And eventually the nation finds themselves back in their homeland and back in Jerusalem. But the sin cycle continues. But this time, instead of deporting the people and taking them out into other nations, this time God's judgment comes and camps on top of the people in the form of the Roman government and their troops. The sin cycle continues, but this time there's a sense of finality in the sin cycle as it continues to unwind itself. And God's people now are thrown out of their land again, which is a pattern, out of the garden, out of the land. The land was always a promise given to those who were obedient, to those who obeyed. It was always a promise that you'll have the land and it will be flourishing when you obey, but when you don't, you'll be off of it. And so once again, they get into their sin cycle. And this time, um, the the Romans come in and they decimate the the temple. They run all the people out. They salt the land. They cut down the trees. They forbid them to practice their, their, their religion except for one day a year to come back to one remnant of the temple and cry for what they've done to themselves. And thus that wall became what we know as the Wailing Wall, which is now called the Western Wall. And so the people were, were scattered among the nations. Scattered among the nations. And their judgment continues as they go out among the nations because they're persecuted without mercy everywhere they go. 
And finally, their persecution cannot be ignored after the atrocities of World War II. And eventually, in 1948, a homeland is established for them in Palestine. Which, and, and there, but even there, they still had to fight for it. Even there, they still had to defend themselves against the world to be able to claim the land. They still do today. So why would a nation so small and, rel- and relatively insignificant as Israel be on the forefront of nearly every nation's foreign policy agenda only because of God, only because that nation is God's chosen people, even to this day. And I know there are theologies and books written and churches who preach that they are no longer a part of God's plan, and I tell you, you cannot find it in Scripture. They are still God's plan. That promise was made to Abraham And that promise still stands because God is a promise-keeping God. And that is why they are still persecuted to this day. That is why they are still hated, simply because they are God's chosen people. Their story has impacted all of mankind. For it wasn't just the Israelites that were affected by the curse. It wasn't just their ground, but it was all mankind. And it wasn't just the chosen people in that land, but it was all the world and all of creation. And it wasn't just a few who suffered from the curse. It went right into me and you. But just like every Disney movie has a remedy to the curse. Sleeping Beauty gets kissed. Fiona gets kissed. You know. There's a remedy to the curse. And that remedy to the curse was tucked into the curse itself. In Genesis 3.15, we saw it there a moment ago, and I will put enmity, he says. This is God speaking to the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent. And really what he's saying, he's speaking to Satan himself, to the devil, and he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And then he speaks about the seed. In the he there, he says, that seed shall bruise you on the head, and ye shall bruise him on the heel. That's the remedy to the curse right there. That seed will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. Seed speaks of descendants, heirs, children. So as a descendant of Adam, ultimately one of Abraham's children, distant yet one of his children, that is that seed that is the remedy to the curse. God's people understood that there was a remedy in part. They had some understanding of it. Dimly as they were, um, shaped by their culture, by their circumstances, by what was happening to them at that time, they understood something about a Messiah that would come. An anointed one. A liberator. One that would free them. And in their understanding of the Messiah would free them, he would free them from the rule of pagan nations and reinstitute the people to their land. This is everything that they thought that freedom was going to look like. It was going to reinstitute temple worship, sacrifices, and they would live in freedom to worship and to follow Yahweh in the way that he had instructed them. The prophets had written. He said this in Isaiah. He says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light, and those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Later on in Isaiah 9, it says this, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness 
from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will accomplish this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. So on a dark night, some 2,000 years ago, the seed of Adam and Abraham, the child that the prophets foretold, the remedy of the curse is revealed. Do you notice in this Isaiah passage right here, one of the names of this child that they're speaking of, this Messiah, this anointed one, is Prince of Peace. He will bring peace to mankind. He will restore order. He will reconcile the animosity between God and his creation. He'll relieve man of his futility. He'll provide a way to resolve his sin problem. When the Messiah was announced, it was not to other kings, to other power holders of the day. The announcement was, of the Messiah was foretold. It, it, it demonstrated, it was, it was, a, it was a, a characterization of the demeanor and the nature of this Messiah. The announcement was made to shepherds. And they were told there, we see it in Luke, it says, For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Matthew goes further. He says this in Matthew 1, Behold, the virgin shall be with a child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God's solution to the curse God's solution to mankind's sin problem was not a layaway plan. It was not an install, installation payment plan. It wasn't even clemency, a pardon. No, someone had to pay the penalty for the sins, for the wrongdoings of mankind. They couldn't just be wiped away. And in God's economy, in his justice system, stated that blood had to be shed to pay for sin. You see that he modeled that, that he intimated that. The very first thing he did after Adam and Eve, after he's put the curse on them, you know, what did he find them doing? They were hiding in shame. And they'd covered themselves with leaves. And the first thing he does is he covers their their shame, he covers their, their, their nakedness with the skins of animals. An animal died to cover them. Blood was shed to cover them. And that same system of justice extends to each and every one of us for our sins, for our wrongdoings. Blood has to be spilled to pay for our sin. So John 3.16 records it just like this. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son to spill his blood so that mankind would not have to. And anyone who believed in him wouldn't perish, but they would have eternal life. The seed that was promised in Genesis 3 was supernatural. It was fully man and fully God. Max Lucado says it like this in one of his devotional books. Stepping from the throne... He removed his robe of light and wrapped himself in skin, pigmented skin, human skin, 
the light of the universe entered a dark, wet womb. He whom angels worship nestled himself in the placenta of a peasant, was birthed into the cold night, and then slept on cow's hay. God's solution to the curse, the seed that he spoke about, came and was born into a peasant family, lived a sinless life, was wrongly accused, tried, and condemned for wrongs he did not do, and ultimately he was executed for them. But he rose from the dead, proving that while he was man, he was still fully God, and death had no power over him. No one else has been able to say that. No other self-ascribed God can say that. No one else has been able to say that they have the power of death and demonstrated it by witnesses who saw it and could affirm it. Only Jesus Christ. John Ortberg is talking about the impact of Jesus Christ. Heard him speak about this last year. And I want to read you an excerpt. Normally when someone dies, their impact on the world immediately begins to recede. As I write this, our world marks the passing of digital innovator Steve Jobs. Someone wrote that 10 years ago, our world had Bob Hope, Johnny Cash, and Steve Jobs. Now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. (laughs) But Jesus inverted this normal human trajectory as he did so many others. Jesus' impact was greater 100 years after his death than during his life. It was greater still after 500 years. And after 1,000 years, his legacy laid the foundation for much of Europe. And after 2,000 years, he has more followers in more places than ever. If someone's legacy will outlast their life, it usually becomes apparent when they die. On that day, when, on the day when Alexander the Great or Caesar Augustus or Napoleon or Socrates or Mohammed died, their reputations were immense. When Jesus died, his tiny failed movement appeared clearly and at an end. If there were a kind of most likely to, to most, most likely to succeed after death award given on the day of death, no history's influential people would have put Jesus at the top of that list. His life and teaching simply drew people to follow him. He made history by starting in a humble place, in a, hum, in a spirit of love and acceptance, and allowing each person space to respond. He deliberately placed himself on a collision course with Rome, where he, would have, where, he would, where he would have been crushed like a gnat, and he was. And yet. Jesus' vision of life continues to haunt and challenge humanity. His influence has swept over history, like the tale of a comet bringing his inspiration of influence to influence art, science, government, medicine, education. He has taught humans about dignity, compassion, forgiveness, and hope. Great men have sometimes tried to secure immortality by having cities named after them. The ancient city was named, was littered, the ancient world was littered with cities that Alexander named Alexandria and Caesar named Caesarea. While Jesus was alive, no one, he had no place to live. Yet today, I live in San Francisco Bay Area, which is by its name named for Francis, a follower of Jesus. Our state capital is Sacramento because Jesus once had a meal with his followers, the Last Supper, became known as the Sacrament. You cannot look at a map without being reminded of this man. Christianity is like a nail. 
Yemelian um, Yugoslavi said, an outspoken opponent of Christ in 1929, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. Yet today, speaking about calendars and times, he says, yet today, every time we glance at a calendar or date a check, we are reminded that chronologically at least, this incredible brief life has become somehow the dividing line of history. Famous people often seek to preserve their legacy by having others named for them. The Bible mentions various characters named Herod after Herodias, named Herod or even Herodias, who are intended to remind us of Herod the Great. On the day of Jesus' death, no one in that tiny circle that knew his identity was naming their new baby after him. But today, the names of Caesar and Nero are, are used, if at all, for pizza parlors, dogs, and casinos, while the names of Jesus lives on and on and on. It is in Jesus' name that desperate people pray, grateful people worship, and angry people swear. From christenings to weddings to sick rooms to funerals, it is in Jesus' name that people are hatched, matched, patched, and dispatched. It is in his name still to this day. The book goes on, and it takes issues of medicine, child-rearing, education, the value of women, and it just touches on all these areas of culture and influence that Jesus and his disciples changed the world because of his teachings and how they lived them out. So we close there by talking about how Jesus' name, that people, desperate people pray and grateful people worship and angry people swear. But Paul said this about his name. For this reason also, God highly exalted and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And of those who are in heaven and on earth and under earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Last night I heard Randy Frazee, a pastor, an author that I, I've read some, and I heard him say this, as something akin to this. I've adapted a little bit for our time today. He said that Caesar, Napoleon, Plato, Constantine, Newton, Galileo, Joan of Arc, Cortez, Calvin, Luther, George Washington, Henry VIII, Abe Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth, Freud, Darwin, Wesley and Spurgeon, Teddy Roosevelt, Churchill, Hitler, Mussolini, Billy Graham, Nelson Mandela, Lady Gaga, Marilyn Manson. They will all, they will all one day be before the risen Lord. And at his name, every single one of them will bow before him. Every single one of them will bow before him. Regardless of their opinion of him, regardless of what they think of him, regardless if they even believe in him in this life, and the next life, they will stand before him at one time or another. I don't know where, I don't know when, but I know the scripture says that every knee will bow before him and realize that he is the Lord. But not all of them will benefit from his death. For not all of them took his death as their payment for their sin. The turning of the curse 
was a child born of a virgin, fully man and fully God. The curse was turned back not by anything man could do, but the one who gave the curse is the one who solved the curse. In this life, we are pressed on all sides, as it says in Corinthians. But with Jesus, we are not overcome. The remedy to the curse has taken residence in my heart and gives me hope that I might see him one day face to face. And in that day, the curse will be lifted. And in that day, what was, what, what was will be no more. And in that day, he will make all things new. Revelation 22, 21. And the promise to turn back the curse will be fulfilled. In that day, one, only one, the Son of God, Jesus, he is the seed that God spoke of in Genesis 3. He is the one that was promised, that came not in a way that anyone thought he would, but as, a, as, a, as an illegitimate boy to a peasant girl in a no-name town where he lived a no-name life. But that life was sinless. And that death that he died was on your behalf so that you could have the solution to the curse. So that the curse on your life could be undone by him. It's interesting that since we've done our study on heaven and we've studied how Revelation and Genesis are bookends to the creation, how he started something and it was perfect and then it was broken by man and his rebellion. And the Bible records the brokenness of man and God's interaction with him and how finally he provides the solution to the curse and man rejects the solution. But he says that there is a day coming in that new heaven, that new earth, when what was broken will be fixed and perfection will return. It's interesting how this Christmas season, as I've listened to the words that people have said, as I've listened to the way that people would describe the gospel, as I've listened to some of the songs we sing, how much that theology is in the old songs. Not so much the new ones, but the old songs have that theology in them of him restoring what was broken. It's good stuff. I hope this season, as we sing the songs, and as you read the songs, and as you read the story, that you too see that in that story, the story of in Matthew, um, Matthew 1 and 2, the story of Luke 1 and 2, that that is, that is the seed. That is the beginning of the curse coming undone. The promise made in Genesis 3 is being fulfilled right there. So today, I'd like you to stand. We're going to sing Joy to the World.